0: Hey friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oakliffe. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do, but more importantly, God does. Alright, so Martin asked me to preach this Sunday, and he actually gave me the passage, and I was laughing because in the passage, we're gonna talk about 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 11, 1. Uh, And in the passage, there's this thing that happens all throughout the letter to the Corinthians and that Paul uses their slogans and kind of turns them back on on themselves. And if you've been around me for a while, you probably will not be surprised to learn this, but I was the kind of kid when I was growing up, I just loved motivational speeches and quotes. Like I loved sports movies, right? I loved learning about the hockey team, and he's like, nine times out of ten, but not today, not this one. I'm like, ah, I don't want to run through a wall. I watch Remember the Titans in theater like 10 times. And I remember the line where the, the white coach is talking to Denzel Washington. He's like, hey, you know, our, our player just got in a car wreck. It's kind of serious. Like maybe winning's not the most important thing. And this is what Denzel says. I'm a winner. I'm going to win. And I was like, yes. It was only later that I was like, wait, that's kind of inappropriate in response to what he just said to him. But I loved it. I loved the phrase carpe diem. I was like, we got to seize the day. And this will, of course, be obvious. Just do it. Obviously a phrase I live my life by, Nike and Nike. I just watched the movie about Air Jordan. Turns out that phrase was uttered by a man on death row. And he tells the executioner, just do it. I've been spending my whole life following a phrase that is not good. So, but I remember my aunt got me this journal. And on the bottom right of the journal were all these motivational quotes. And I, I thought this journal was so cool. I thought it was really special. I thought she got it just for me and I would write my pregame speeches before my volleyball games in this, and I was like, yeah. And And then all of a sudden I started realizing the farther I got into the journal, some of the quotes felt like they almost contradicted the other quotes. Like, for example, like, how can you seize the day when you're also supposed to stop and smell the roses? Like, I don't know how you, like, grab the day for all it's worth, but also slow down. Like, how can you live your life on an edge? When Aristotle's also saying that, Quality is not an act, but it's a habit. You're just supposed to be in this habitual rhythm life. So you're not always supposed to be extreme, but yet you're also supposed to be courageous. And I was like, this is dumb. And I remember years later seeing that same journal that I thought was so special, and it was for sale at Jamba Juice. And I was like, oh, that's not a special (laughs) journal just for me. Apparently people who like shakes in the middle of the day also like that journal. So I felt a little betrayed by that, but that's all right. But... All that to say, I think when Paul is talking to the Corinthians, I think he faces a similar dilemma to what I was experiencing at 17 years old. Paul recognizes the Corinthians have these mottos that they live by, these phrases, and he's going, yeah, but maybe not always. Maybe you shouldn't carpe every diem. Like maybe there needs to be some wisdom that applies to it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10:23 through 11, 1. We're going to talk about this slogan that the Corinthians live by, and then we're going to talk about how Paul is going to try and give them a better way to live in light of who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. And so this is 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1. This is the slogan at the beginning. Everything is permissible. It's why it's in the quotation. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So eat everything that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. If any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that's set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that... They may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving this word. Uh, As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, would you help my words this morning to be beautiful, true, and right? Would you help encourage us uh, to not live a life where we pursue a model, but to pursue a life where we pursue you and where the good life is found in you. So be with us this morning. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen. Okay, so since this passage is a little odd, it's talking about food sacrificed to idols, Unless you're sitting there going, great, I'm not going to walk into Aldi today and run into food sacrificed idols, so we're good, Unless you think this doesn't apply to you. Let me unpack what's happening in Corinth, and let me explain to you why I still think the passages on food sacrificed idols apply to us today. For starters, Corinth is a mess. <laughs> they are an absolute mess of a church. You can tell from Paul's writings to them that he's having to contend with all kinds of bonkers situations. And Paul really knows these people. From Acts 18, we know that he not only planted that church, but he spent a year and a half with them, which in Paul time, that's a long time. Because don't think, hey, just Sunday morning, hour and a half, they gather. Think they did life together. They worked together. They broke bread together. They spent all this time together. And so there's a very good chance Paul was spending six to seven days a week with these people as well as leading them in worship. Like he knows these people well. He would know them by name. Imagine, you're doing life with Mart for a year and a half. He's in your home. He's in, he's in your life. He shows up to your kids' sports. Like, like kind of the point where, you're like, Mart, don't you have something else to do? Like, you really know Mart at this point. And he's now left Corinth, and he's getting reports from people saying, have you heard what the Corinthians are doing? And he's like, tell me what they're doing. And the report is not good. And Paul is writing to them to say, hey, guys, you're not living in accordance with the gospel. And so what he does in this letter to the church in Corinth is it follows a pattern all throughout. Basically, he says, here's what I'm hearing. Here's what you're doing wrong. And then here's how the gospel speaks to that issue. So first, it's about divisions. He's like, oh, you follow Apollos? You follow Peter? Don't you know there's one Christ? And then he talks about things like intercourse. And he's like, I've heard it, that even this guy is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Like, what are y'all doing? And then he talks about how the gospel calls us to purity. Then this passage where ours falls is about food sacrificed to idols. People are divided on whether or not they should be allowed to eat food sacrificed to idols. And Paul is going to talk to them like he does in our passage. And later they talk about the worship gathering. People are being loud and obnoxious. And he's like, hey, it should be orderly. And then he ends in chapter 15 talking about the resurrection. Because the Corinthians, they don't believe in the resurrection. Which is kind of the whole ballgame of Christianity. And so each time Paul's like, here's the issue. And here's how the gospel speaks to what we're talking about. And, like I mentioned, the Corinthians have slogans they like to live by, like 17-year-old Nike. And so throughout the letter to the Corinthians, Paul will quote their slogans. And if you have a good translation, they'll put those quotes in quotation. Oftentimes, Paul's like, oh, I follow Apollos, and then he mocks them. Like, like if you've not read Corinthians, it's good literature. Paul mocks them pretty mercilessly at times. You're meant to laugh by the time you get to the end of Corinthians. And so our passage, the one that we're looking at today, it's at the end of a long discourse about food sacrificed to idols. He's talked about all these different scenarios. And you have to understand food sacrificed to idols is so normal in the ancient world, especially in cities like Athens, Ephesus, Corinth. You should just assume that when you go to buy meat in the marketplace, very good chance that it has been sacrificed to Zeus, to Artemis, to some other Greco-Roman deity, and the food you're buying has already gone to a temple. Much like Jewish temples, and so they'd have a priest that worships whatever, Artemis, Zeus, whatever. They take the animal, they slaughter it, they drain the blood, they they butcher it. Priests are really just, like, glorified butchers, if you don't know. That's what they do. They butcher the animal, the priest will take his part, sacrifice the part that belongs to Zeus, and the rest of the animal, if you've ever bought a part of a cow, a lamb, or whatever, it's a lot of meat. And so they would give it back to the person who brought it, and they would go sell it in the marketplace, And so Paul is getting this report and saying there's people in the church going, hey, because that food was sacrificed to Zeus, we should not eat it. We are Christians. That is pagan food. And then there are other people going, hey, everything's permissible. We're Christians. We're free. Christ has set us free. It doesn't matter. What does it matter if it was sacrificed to Zeus? We're free to do whatever we want. And the problem is now they're fighting. Now there's conflict. And so Paul gets this report that they're fighting about this, and to eat or not to eat, that is the question. Like, Paul is getting this question. And if you are type A, if you are black and white, you're going to hate Paul's response. Because Paul's response is, maybe. Should we eat the food sacrificed idol? He goes, uh, maybe. And so he starts talking about all the different scenarios and how he would handle himself in each of the scenarios. So Paul doesn't have a clear rule. He's not like, yep, food sacrificed idols off-limits. And neither does he say, hey, guys, eat all the food, sacrifice idols. It doesn't matter. He doesn't say that. And so he gets to our passage, and he starts with this Corinthian slogan, everything is permissible. And then he goes, yeah, but not everything is beneficial. And then he repeats it. Hey, everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. He's taking their seize the day, their carpe diem, and he's saying, yeah, but wisdom requires that there's limits to your phrase. And so what what Corinthian scholars think is happening is the people are saying, hey, Jesus died, rose again. We are free. We're living in the end times. We can do whatever we want. Christ has paid for all of our sins. It doesn't matter what we do, which is kind of right, as long as you're not sinning. It's, it's kind of right. Like, you are free as Christians. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, but Christ has conquered death, so we're going to go on to the, to the new heavens and the new earth. And so they're just living it up. They're like, hey, we're in the end times. Everything's fair game. Christ died for us. We are free. Let's be free. I promise you can find passages in this Bible that says you're free in Christ. And the Corinthians are like, yeah, let's do it. Let's be as free as we can possibly be. And Paul goes, Uh, you're not inherently wrong It's just what you're saying is incomplete. And Paul says there's limits to freedom if you're truly in Christ. Yes, Christ has set you free. But if you're truly in Christ, you will limit your own freedom. And so he basically says, look, let me give you a couple scenarios. He says, you want to go into the marketplace? You want to buy meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Everything's permissible. Be free. He says that. He's like, everything's permissible. eh, And he's like, you walking through the marketplace? And they're like, hey, Zeus meat right here good sell on Zeus lamb. He's like, great, buy it. And he says, but if you're at someone's house and a non-Christian's invited you and they announced the meat has been sacrificed to an idol, then don't eat. And this is why they would do that. It seems weird to us. Like we don't walk in and we're like, Tom Thumb, $4.99 a pound. Everybody enjoy. But what they would do in the ancient world is if you went to someone's house and you were sitting down for a meal, most likely a slave or someone of a lower class would bring in the food and the host would stand up and go, This food has been sacrificed to Zeus, all hail almighty Zeus, now let's eat. And so Paul says, hey, if that's the situation, don't eat. Because what's going to happen is that non-believer who knows you're a Christian is going to think you're okay with idolatry, and your God's okay with idolatry, so don't eat that food. You're by yourself in the marketplace, you want to buy the food? Yeah, everything's permissible. You're in someone's home, and they're like, all hail Zeus, this is Zeus's meat, don't eat, because it's not beneficial And it doesn't build up. And so he says, look, if you're gonna cause someone to stumble, you need to check yourself. If it's gonna cause a non-believer to have their conscience seared and they're gonna be confused about the worship of the one true God, don't eat. And then he gives them the slogan that they should be reciting. Instead of everything is permissible, Paul says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That's the slogan you should be living by. Everything is permissible. There's limits on that. The slogan you can always live by, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Now, that's not as pithy, right? You, like, everything's permissible. It's two Greek words. I looked it up, the uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever, 13 words in the Greek. Not as pithy, not as easy, doesn't roll off the tongue. Harder to tattoo if you're into that sort of thing. So it's not as simple of a catchphrase, but most catchphrases aren't. And Paul then finally says, listen, don't be offensive to others and do the thing that will get the most people saved. Like, don't be offensive to people and do the thing that will get the most people saved. And if you're not sure what it is, then look at me as I imitate Christ. If you don't know how to do this, then follow me as I follow after Christ. And so you think to yourself, okay, great. It's pretty simple. I shouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols at a dining room table. Great. I don't think I'm in danger of this passage. Well, let's talk about how this passage actually can apply to us today. If all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training righteousness, then food sacrificed to idols actually still speaks to us today. So here's the first way that I think this passage still matters for us. Everything is permissible, but love and self-denial are higher values to Paul in the gospel. Everything is permissible, does work, except... When love and self-denial are at odds with your freedom. For the Corinthians, they valued personal freedom over their unity in the body. Paul's getting reports. They are bickering over this food sacrifice to idols. And Paul is saying, listen, the point of a church is to be unified together. And so Paul doesn't respond by saying yes or no. He responds by saying, love each other. If this thing is causing you harm to the group, then let your love be greater than your liberty. That's how this still applies today. Paul's basic message to the Corinthians is your love is greater than liberty in the gospel economy. Your care of neighbors should be more important than your personal freedom to do as you please. And so listen, maybe the issue today is not food sacrifice idols for us. I highly doubt any of you are going to leave here and go do your Sunday meal prep and run into food sacrifice idols. I highly doubt that. But I bet you have found yourself in situations with other believers that are not issues of sin. Listen, Paul's not saying you're free to sin. He would say, by no means, may it never be, don't sin. But on issues of wisdom and disagreement in Christianity, he would say, make sure your love is the higher value than your right to do whatever you want. And I promise you will run into those situations. Paul's main message to the Corinthians is not, hey, sin. Like he's, he would never tell you that. But when it comes to maybe movies you watch, drinks you enjoy, how you use your social media, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, these are issues of wisdom where you are truly free and there is no sin, but yet there's disagreement on wisdom. Paul would say your love of others should be higher than you going around saying, well, everything's permissible, I'm free to do what I want. And so listen, I don't think you always have to bend to the people around you, right? I don't think if, you, if your whole life people are encouraging you to get this job and then one person says, I don't think that's wise. Like, I, I don't think you always have to bend to that one person. I think that requires wisdom. But what I am saying is if your personal freedom is more important to you than loving the other person, then you're out of step with the gospel, according to Paul. You need a chiropractic adjustment that allows the love of your neighbor to be higher than your right to eat meat. That's what Paul would say. He goes, don't eat the meat then if it's going to hurt someone else. That's the first thing, is love is greater than our liberty. The second thing that I think this passage still speaks to us today about is if you're not sure how to navigate a tricky situation, you're kind of going, hey, there's, there's freedom here, but Christians agree and disagree on how to do this, then Paul would say, this is the question you should ask yourself, not what am I free to do, this is the question. What will bring glory to God? and maximize the potential for people to get saved. That's his driving question. If you're in a situation, food, sacrifice, idols, or some other situation where it's not sin, again, don't sin. Paul would never encourage that. But on issues of wisdom, and you're in a tricky situation, he wouldn't say, ask yourself, what am I allowed to do? He would say, what brings glory to God, and what maximizes the potential for people to get saved? And What's interesting about Paul is he is far more concerned about offending the non-believers than the believers. Isn't that interesting? Paul's like, hey, when non believers are not in with us, do not offend them. Work really hard so as to not offend them. Which is why he wouldn't say, go into a meal with somebody and they invite you into their home, a non believer does, and you sit down to the meal, and if they don't announce that the food's sacrificed to Zeus, he's not like, hey, is this food sacrificed to Zeus, the pagan? But then I can't eat it. <laughs> Thanks. He would never say, He'd be like, don't do that. Why are you doing that? But if they go ahead and announce it, then you should resist. Now, Paul is not saying we shouldn't have convictions. Again, he's not suggesting he sins. But he's saying on issues of conscience, on issues of wisdom, he would say, Don't do anything that makes it harder for non believers to come to Christ. Don't do anything that would make it harder for a non believer to come to Christ. This is the same Paul. When he's writing to the church in Galatia, he also planted that church. And what happens is after they've been planted, a group of Judaizers, which are people that believe instead of going straight through the cross to salvation, you have to go through Judaism first and then through the cross to get saved. And it looks like this. Hey, instead of a non-Christian just saying, hey, Christ died for me. I accept that. I'm moving forward in Christianity. They would say, no, you have to get circumcised, eat kosher law, and uphold the Mosaic law, and then you can get saved. And Paul is perturbed by that. He is very upset. You know how he knows? Because the Judaizers are encouraging the Galatians to get circumcised. And he says, that is an obstacle to the gospel. And then he says, I kid you not, go read your Bible. Why don't you just tell them to cut the whole thing off? And all of us soft little Christian people are going, "Ah, it's in your Bible. I promise you it's in there. Now, good chance your translation has softened it. But Paul's point, he is so angry at this because he's like, that is too big of a hurdle for a non-Christian. If you're telling them they have to come through Judaism first to get to the gospel, they may never come to Christ. Why would you put an obstacle up to them coming to Christ? And that's why he gets so worked up anytime time there's a hindrance to the gospel. He's the same Paul in the previous chapter, in chapter 9 of Corinthians, he says this, To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I'm not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, these are Gentiles, I become like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. And then he concludes, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I have a professor that, the question was always, after Paul gets converted, does he eat kosher still? This is a question scholars sit around. It's like, how many angels can dance on the head of a needle? We're like, we don't know. And so the question is, when Paul gets converted, his whole life he's eating kosher, his whole life as a faithful Jew, boom, Damascus Road, he's now a Christian, does he still eat kosher? And you know what Scott McKnight says? When he's around the Jews, he does. And when he's around the Gentiles, he doesn't. And he appoints to this passage, I become all things to all people so that I might save some." He is encouraging us to not put any hindrances in the way for people coming to Christ. Christ is already offensive enough. Christ already demands you that you come and die. Let Christ be offensive. You don't be the reason why Christ is offensive is what Paul is saying. But because we tend to play with those in our Christian circles, we tend to vacation and hang out and spend most of our our non-working time, with those in our Christian circles, I think today we're often more concerned about not offending each other. But for Paul, he's far more concerned that we don't offend the outsider. And he would say offending the outsider is incompatible with the greater goal of the gospel. In other words, Paul is like Martin. I've heard Martin say this all the time. We just got to get them in. We just got to get them in. Just get them in. And then Paul, like Martin would say, and once they're in, the spirit will convict them. The Spirit will ask them to give up the behavior they're currently in. He'll teach them. He'll grow them. We, once they're in, as our brothers and sisters, we can come to them with a gentle rebuke and say, hey, that that way you're living is not in accordance with the gospel, but we got to get them in first. It's salvation, then behavior change. It's never behavior change, then salvation. And so if you're asking people to clean up before they can come to the gospel, you would hear from Paul and you would say, that's not the way. Instead, you tell people about Jesus Christ, and you don't give them a reason why they wouldn't come. Instead, we ask ourselves, is my behavior and my choices, is that a sweet aroma for non-Christians? Is my conduct attractive to those I'm eager to share the good news with? Does the way I live demonstrate a gospel of love and goodness and mercy and truth? In the ancient world, all of life was really public. You just kind of lived, worked, played. You I hope well-meaning Christians that I think that is so unnecessarily offensive. And then it gets sent to me by my non-Christian friends. And they ask me to explain it as if I speak on behalf of that Christian or all Christians. My favorite is when somebody is an especially bonkers Christian and somebody's like, can you explain them? I'm like, no, no. I mean, they belong to me, but no. For Paul, he would ask you to say, what will bring the most glory to God and what will maximize the potential for people to get saved? He would say, give up meat the rest of your life if it means someone comes to know Christ. That's what he'd say. And so my question to us is, what is it that maybe we're doing, maybe knowingly, maybe unknowingly, but what are the ways in which our lives make Christ attractive? Because I promise you that people outside of that Corinthian church watching the infighting and the bickering probably thought to themselves, I already have that in my own family. Why would I want that in a new family? So as Christians, can we live a life that makes Christ a sweet aroma for others? Paul has taught us that love is greater than liberty. He's taught us that we should be asking ourselves, how can I glorify God and love our neighbor as tantamount values? But Paul also teaches us something really interesting about human behavior. At the very end, that yeah, I had to go into 11.1. One. Did you all know that a guy in 1551 named Stephanus is the one that gave us the chapter and verses? And the legend has it he was in the back of a carriage. And so in moments like this, when he clearly should have kept this at the end of chapter 10, I think he hit a bump in the road. That's my theory, my working theory. So I think, it, I think this section actually ends at 11.1. One. But at the end of it, Paul says, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And this statement, if you read it at first, it may seem arrogant of Paul, right? But Paul is the founder of this church, and he knows them well. And he's not saying imitate me always. He's saying in the ways that I imitate Christ, follow after me. And he's hitting on this very true thing about human behavior is that humans just imitate. It's what we do. It's humanity 101. We've been imitating from the jump. You can see it in the Bible passages. We want to be like the Canaanites. We want to be like the other people. We tend to want to be like those we hold in high esteem and we imitate. And so I kid you not, I was at La La Land Cafe yesterday and this, this picture, I just snapped this photo. So La La Land has figured out coffee. You know why? Everything there is Instagrammable. Have y'all been to La La Land? Okay, I went on a Saturday morning at 10 a.m. and I swear I saw 75 photos snapped in the two hours I was there. They have this cool truck out front. Their, their cups are, like, bright yellow. They've got a cool mission. And these four girls walk up to the front of La, La Land, and they ask another girl who's not in their party to take their photo. And the girl not in their party goes, did you all plan to all dress alike? And they said, no. We all just showed up here in black. And she goes, no way. And they go, yeah, we all just, we all just showed up in black, as if there was a uniform that they all just secretly knew about. And so at that point, I had to leave anyways. I wasn't stalking them. I don't want y'all to think. I was already leaving anyways. And I'm walking behind them. And I hear one girl go, oh, my gosh, even our shoes are white. And so I just pulled on my phone. I was like, "Because this is what I'm teaching on. We imitate. We just do this as humans. And so lest you think I'm stalking them, I will tell you one of the most embarrassing things about myself so you understand how imitation works. I told Robin I was going to share this. And she said, I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> so she said, are you Sure. I said yes. So, when I was in high school, high school Nika was a little unhinged. Okay, y'all are lucky you get thirty-year-old, thirty-nine-year-old Nika. I'm thirty-eight. I don't know why I said thirty-nine, but when I was in high school, I watched the movie Coyote Ugly. Anybody seen Coyote Ugly? If you haven't, don't. It's not. It's not not good. But I I've always been loud. I've always been blonde. I've always been aggressive. I've always been like I've always known that as a woman, there's certain places that maybe I'm too much. And, and, I, and so watching Coyote Ugly for me was almost cathartic because it's all these women and they're dancing on bar. And, but the bar owner is tough as nails I just loved her. I thought she was the coolest woman I'd ever seen on the screen. So I kid you not, I, get done watching, I was by myself, I drove 30 miles to a theater by myself to watch it and when I left there I literally scheduled a haircut and got my hair cut like her and this is the embarrassing part, I started wearing pleather pants. <laughs> now today we just call that vegan leather it's not vegan. It's cheap pleather. I don't know why we say that. But I started wearing pleather pants. And I tell you all that to say, yes, that's embarrassing. But it reminds me of the power of story entertainment. We tend to imitate. Like, we see this. Like, you can watch what happens on e-television, and you'll see the trends trickle in. I went and picked up my friends from the Taylor Swift concert, and everyone was in sequence. As if there was, like, some, like, memo that went out to tell everybody that we are going to dre- we do this though we imitate. And so Paul is saying, look, in light of the fact we're already going to do this cuz this is how we're bent, you need a better example than the ones you're clearly following. Because the one you're following in Corinth isn't working for you. It's causing infighting, it's causing you to use your freedom to harm others, so follow me. So this creates a few so what's for us. If we're going to imitate, if we're going to become what we behold, then the first thing we have to do is we have to behold Christ. If we become what we behold, then we need to spend so much time with our Lord and Savior that hopefully we begin to look and smell and talk and act like him. And the second thing is, is we got to be around people who also imitate him. We need to surround ourselves with people who in their life, they also look and smell and talk and act like Christ. And we should receive this as a warning, that if someone were to imitate our own lives, What sort of fruit would that bring up? I remember my niece was four years old, and I would always come to town super late at night, so I usually had a ball cap on because I hadn't showered that day. And y'all know me. I'm almost always in athletic clothes, and my niece comes running out. She's in Nike shoes, Nike shorts, a T-shirt, a a sling body bag, and a ball cap. And she goes, look, I'm at Nike. And it was really cute, and I was so honored. And then I thought, oh, she's watching. She's watching. (laughs) She's watching. But that's also a gift if I will steward that that hopefully my behavior as her aunt will show her a better way to live than what her peers, of course, can't show her currently. If we are imitators, then we have to behold Christ. We have to imitate people in our life who look like Christ. And we've got to make sure we understand if people are going to imitate us, there will be fruit. Is it good fruit or is it strange fruit? So this is our big what. The gospel is good news. It's, it's the proclamation that Christ's life, death, and resurrection changes everything we are free. The Corinthians are right. We're free. Drink your wine, eat your food, be free, but our real freedom means that we're free to love, to serve, to sacrifice, and to evangelize. Our freedom was always meant for the sake of mission, not for the sake of personal gain. Freedom is for the sake of mission, and so if you want a life motto, it should not be everything is permissible. Your life motto should be the gospel has, in fact, set me free, But it has set me free to glorify God, love others, and live a life worth imitating. We are free. As free people, would we use our freedom to love and serve those around us so that the glory of God will be on display wherever we go? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word still speaks to us today and that we have much to learn about food sacrificed to idols. Would you help us to live lives where our freedom is not for personal gain, but for love of neighbor? Would you help us to enjoy the freedom that you've given us? In fact, things are permissible. We can walk freely and know that most of freedom in life is given to us by you. Thank you for that. But would you help us to love and serve? And would you help us to imitate you and to imitate those who walk in step with you? Encourage us, strengthen us, bless us this morning, Lord. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.